Well, here we are in our final week of our Malachi sermon series, where we have been looking at what this uh, last book in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible has to teach us today. Uh, Malachi sits at the end of the Old Testament, right before the New Testament. In my Bible, there's just like barely any space in between Malachi and the New Testament. There's like this much space. Uh, and so it's easy for us to flip from the Old Testament to the New Testament. But in reality, what happened was uh, the Lord spoke to his people through the prophet Malachi. And then there was a period of time for about 400 years from the last time God spoke to his people through his servant Malachi until the arrival of uh, the next prophet of God to speak to his people. 400 years. This much space in our Bible, but 400 years in time where God's people were living in the in-between of what God did last and what he was going to do next. 400 years. So uh, a picture that, uh, so Canada was formed as a nation officially in 1867, so over 150 years ago. The United States was formed as a nation in 1776, so over 240 years ago. So you take the age of Canada and the age of America, and this July, you'll have basically 400 years. That's how long it took for the people of Israel to hear again from the Lord after they received these words from Malachi. So we're landing the plane in our sermon series in this book, and we're going to hear the last words that God spoke to his people until a 400-year gap. Here's what he said. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So how are the Israelites supposed to live in the in-between? In between when God last spoke to them in this book and before he speaks to them Again, what is it supposed to look like for them to live in this season? Look, they, they didn't expect it probably to be 400 years. They didn't expect it to be that long. But what are the final words? How are they supposed to live in the in-between? And this is really helpful for us too, because the reality is, is that we are also living in the in-between. We are living in between when Jesus first came in his life, his death, his ministry, and when he's going to be coming back again to complete the ministry that he set out to do, which is to make all of creation new again. We, we are living in the in-between just like they were. And our in-between feels very long, just like it felt very long for the Israelites. So what does this passage have to teach us, God's people, about what it looks like to live in the in-between? Two things. First, we need to listen to Moses. Second, we need to watch for Elijah. That's what it looks like to live in the in-between. We listen to Moses and we watch for Elijah. So first, let's look at what it means to listen to Moses. Malachi 4, verse 4, giving these final words, says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, 
the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. So let's remember this scene a little bit. Let's, let's jog our memory about what Malachi is referring to. The people of Israel uh, were enslaved in the country of Egypt for over 400 years. There's that time frame again. Over 400 years, the Israelites were slave, in, enslaved in Egypt. They're crying out to the Lord for a rescuer, for a, a deliverer. And God, by his grace, extends his salvation to them through a rescuer named Moses. He sends Moses to Pharaoh in Egypt, and he says, let my people go. And it's a long battle between Pharaoh and God. But at the end of the story, Moses leads the Israelites out of their oppression, out of their slavery, into freedom. And now this rescuer goes up on the mountain and he receives at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, which it was also referred to as, he receives this law. He receives the teachings that God has for his people. See, they, they have been saved by God's grace. They put their faith in their rescuer, Moses, to lead them out of their slavery in Egypt. And he brings them out into the wilderness where they now receive what it looks like to live in obedience to God. And it's this obedience to God's word that's actually going to give them an abundance in the land that they're going to live in. So in other words, the summary of Israel's salvation is that God has saved them by grace through their faith unto a life of obedience to the teachings. And obedience to the teachings is going to lead to their abundance in the land. Salvation is by grace through faith unto obedience for abundance. So Malachi is reminding the Israelites, look, until you hear from God again, what you need to do is you need to listen to your rescuer teacher, Moses. Listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. And that's the same uh, truth for us today. We are living also in an in-between, and we also have a rescuer teacher. We have someone who sat up on a mountain to teach us, and how do we live as we await for God to do the next thing he's promised to do? We, we listen to our Moses, we listen to our rescuer teacher. See, Jesus went up on a mountain to teach himself. Matthew 5 through 7 tells us about the Sermon on the Mount. And here's how it starts. Matthew 5 verses 1 to 2. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. See, Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount is demonstrating how he is actually a, a new and a, and a better Moses, that, that he is the one who's actually going to provide for God's people the teaching of what it, it means to live as God's people. Now that they've been saved by grace through faith, how is it that they live unto obedience to God in the ways that are going to lead to their flourishing, to their abundance? So the, the big idea of the Sermon on the Mount, the big idea of this message that uh, the new and greater rescuer teacher Jesus provides for us is summarized in, in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Here's what it says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is Jesus, this teacher on the mountain, telling us, his followers? Well, he's telling us that the kingdom of God is experienced by those whose righteousness surpasses the Pharisees. That's a crazy thing to say, because the Pharisees were well known for their uh, strict keeping of the law. They had all kinds of laws that they had set up to ensure that they didn't break God's law. And they were uh, steadfast and stubborn in their keeping of the laws. And Jesus is saying, look, if you want to experience the kingdom of God, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be better than the Pharisees. But here's the thing about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the kind of people who were so concerned with making sure that they did everything right, that at times they missed the point of the law underneath the law. They were so concerned with the letter of the law, and in particular, the letter of the laws that they created themselves as fences that they put up around God's law, that they would sometimes miss the very heart underneath the purpose of the law. They're kind of like the student in school who is in a class and uh, rather than striving to learn the material because they want to have the material shape their thinking and shape their living, they're the kind of student who will always be asking the teacher, uh, will this be on the test? Like what we're talking about right now, is this, is this going to be on the test? Is this something I have to know? Because if it's not, then I don't really want to follow it. That's the approach of the Pharisees. They're the, is this on the test kind of people. They disregard the, the deeper level of what the Lord is actually wanting his people to live like and so dogmatic about making sure they get the test right. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's, he's talking about the fact that it's not just our actions that matter, but our intentions matter. Uh, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about different case studies for this idea. He'll say, look, you've heard it said, don't murder. And I say to you, don't be angry, right? It's entirely possible for you to not murder people. <laughs> Is this on the test? Don't murder? Got it. It's quite another thing to have your intention underneath what drives people to murder not even be a reality. Not murdering is an easy approach to being obedient. Not being angry, that's actually the heart of the matter. See, this was the problem that Jesus was addressing in the Sermon on the Mount, this idea of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. So uh, our sermon series in Malachi, we've been calling it imposter, right? There's a picture of a guy looking into a mirror and he has a mask that's taken off. Our idea with hypocrisy is sometimes that someone's actions don't match their professions. We do something different than we say we do. 
or that we should do. But that's not so much what was understood in the first century with uh, being a hypocrite. That would have just been seen as someone being deceitful, someone saying, I'm going to do this, but they actually don't do it. They would have called that person a liar or someone who's deceitful. But a hypocrite was someone who was willing to do the actions without the underlying motive being in place. The Pharisees were hypocrites. They did stuff. They just missed the intention. They missed the heart disposition behind it. So imagine uh, you are uh, a parent and you have two children and uh, your one child knocks the plate of food over uh, the table from the other child, right? Chicken nuggets everywhere, French fries all over the place. And the, the sibling who just lost their whole dinner is so sad. And the older sibling uh, who knocked the food over is told by the parent, look, you need to say sorry to your brother. Now, it's possible for the sibling to recognize the guilt and the mistake in what they did and with a heartfelt intention say, I'm so sorry that I did that. It's also entirely possible that the sibling hears the command from their parents to say sorry to their sibling and what do they do? They say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's a hypocrite. It's a doing of the command without the underlying heart disposition that's intended. Or you're driving in the vehicle right after dinner, right? Plates all knocked over, you're gonna drive up to McDonald's now to go buy new nuggets and fries. And on your way to McDonald's, uh, you tell your children, look, keep your hands to yourself. And in the back seat, one brother to the other brother is waving their hands in front of their face and saying, well, I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. Right, are, are they keeping them hands to themselves? Well, technically, yeah, they're not touching their sibling, but they're doing it in a hypocritical kind of way. They're obeying the letter of the law, but not the underlying intention of the law. This is what Jesus is getting after here. He's saying, look, Pharisees love to keep the rules that they created. They love to check the boxes so that they can say, look, I did the things, but they miss the underlying intentions and heart disposition that Jesus is actually after. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, look, there's two paths. There's the Pharisee path and there's the kingdom of God path. And the Pharisee path, the hypocritical path, the doing the things but without the right intention path, that's a wide road. It's an easy road. There's a big gate that leads to an easy road and it's headed towards destruction. There's a smaller gate and there's a harder road that actually leads to the kingdom of God. It's not just doing the things. It's recognizing the heart intention and heart disposition underneath it. It's one thing to not murder. It's another thing to not be angry. How are we supposed to live in the in-between? In between what God has done last and what he's going to do next. While we listen to our rescuer teacher, we, we listen to what he has to say. We follow his words because we know that his words and his laws are for our good. They're for our flourishing. We know that we have been saved by grace through faith 
unto a life of obedience for our abundance. So we listen to Moses. We listen to the better Moses. We listen to our rescuer and deliverer, Jesus. Secondly, we watch for Elijah. Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6 says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, that the day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So Elijah is the uh, great prophet who had a, a ministry in the midst of Israel at a time when so many of the Israelites were uh, apostatizing. They were turning away from Yahweh, their Lord, and turning towards the God of the land called Baal. And uh, Elijah had all kinds of really great moments, but the, the pinnacle of his public ministry was when he goes up on a mountain. And on this mountain, he is uh, having a... a, a a, a battle of the gods between Baal and Yahweh, between uh, the prophets of Baal pleading with their God to act and move and Elijah by himself pleading with his God to act and move. And so they say, okay, whoever's God can rain down the fire. That's the God that we know is real. And Elijah has this mountaintop experience of Yahweh showing up in the midst of his ministry. Elijah was a, uh, the great prophet for the people of Israel. So Malachi is saying, look, Elijah is going to come back before God comes to end history. Elijah is going to come back. And how do we know that Elijah has come back? Well, verse six, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. In other words, you will know Elijah has returned because there is interpersonal reconciliation taking place. That's how you know Elijah the prophet came back. That's how you live in the in-between, waiting for the prophet Elijah. You, you watch to see this one come back who's going to bring reconciliation. So did Elijah actually come back? Well, Matthew 11 Jesus says, truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. See, John the Baptist was the one who they were going to hear from next. And that 400 year gap between when God spoke to his people last and when he's going to speak to them next, he speaks to them next through John the Baptist. He's the last in the line of the old covenant prophets. So whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, because whoever is now a part of the new work is greater than the one who is a part of the old work. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. See, Jesus is saying, what Malachi was speaking about is now coming into reality. Elijah's come back through the ministry of John. But not just through the ministry of John. See, Elijah actually does come back. This is the great plot twist in the Elijah coming back saga. He does come back. Matthew 17 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And there Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. Listen to him. See, Jesus says that John the Baptist in his ministry is like the Elijah to come, but Elijah also came back. He came back on the mountain with Moses and Elijah, and the scene overwhelms the disciples. But the point of the scene is the voice from the Father coming onto the mountain saying, Okay, Moses. Okay, Elijah. Here's the point. Listen to my son. Focus on Jesus, the whole law and prophets and history of salvation for God's people find their focus and fulfillment in the person of Jesus. So Elijah has come back. And what's the result of Elijah coming back? Reconciliation. Reconciliation is going to follow the return of Elijah. See, Jesus is the one who is the greater Moses. Jesus is the one who is the greater Elijah. And through this Jesus, we receive an even greater reconciliation than we could have ever asked for or dreamt about or imagined. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, we have a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees through our faith in Christ. Yes, we are called to live in the ways of Jesus. We are called to listen to our teacher, but not in order to earn our righteousness greater than the Pharisees. We live a obedient life to the commands of Jesus because we have a righteousness greater than the Pharisees, a righteousness in Christ. We are reconciled to God through Christ. Reconciliation follows the ministry of the greater Elijah. So you know Elijah came back because reconciliation follows. And if you put your trust in the greater Elijah, you'll be reconciled to God. And that reconciliation with God has implications of how we live on the ground. You see, Christians as reconciled people live like reconciled people. 
Here's what I mean by that. The Apostle Paul, in writing a letter to the church in Philippi, near the end of his letter, he addresses a tension in the community. Here's what he says. Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind, to stop disagreeing. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul is saying, look, there are Christians in your midst in Philippi that are living in perpetual disagreement. And they need to come together and be of the same mind. As people who are reconciled to God through Christ, they now live as reconciled amongst each other. It's no longer okay for them to live in this ongoing, persistent disagreement, this ongoing, persistent division. And we might scoff at this. How how could Christians live in division and in disagreement? But we don't scoff for long because this is the reality of our church. We are a church filled with Iodias and Syntyches. We are a church filled with disagreements and divisions. And it's about other things besides COVID, but it's especially about things related to COVID. See, I'm convinced that the single greatest threat to our church is not external persecution or oppression or laws of the land. The greatest single threat to our church is the relational fracture and division that could be within it. We're a church filled with Iodias and Syntyches. And we're being pleaded with to be of the same mind. We think other people are handling a situation so stupidly. We think to ourselves as we see their posts on Facebook and on Twitter and we have conversations with them, man, what a bunch of morons. But Jesus has a word for us here. Here's Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. And then come and offer your gift. Man, what a hard word this is for a church experiencing relational fractures. That word rakah, some translations uh, will say, if you insult your brother, you speak an insult to your brother. Other translations choose to keep that Greek word rakah in there. The reason why translators will keep that word in there is because rakah was actually a Greek uh, swear word. It's a derogatory, offensive term. The kind of term you don't say to people. Jesus says, look, you think it's okay to just not murder, but you're going around using slurs with people. You go around calling them fools. The Greek word there for fool is moros. What does that sound like? Sounds like moron. Look, you say, look, you've heard it said, don't murder. 
it's great, don't murder people. But also, I'm saying don't be angry with people. Don't go around calling them slurs. Don't go around calling them morons. And what, what does he say is the effect? Look, it, if you act this way, and you know someone has something against you, you know that you have a relationship that isn't reconciled, don't even go into church and bring your worship until you've dealt with that issue. Look, one of the great frustrations of this past year is that we haven't been able to gather in church like normal. But according to this passage, even if we could, if today they lifted the orders and said, go back to church like normal, there's many of us, if we take this passage seriously, that might actually have to skip church for one week and make some phone calls first and reconcile with others. See, look, the greatest threat for us as a church is not an oppression from the outside. The greatest threat to our church is not the laws of the land. The greatest threat to our church right now is relational fracture and division. And us thinking it's okay to just be angry with each other and go along like there's nothing wrong. Because what, at least I'm not a murderer. The heart intention matters. See, we will know that the greater Elijah has actually come because reconciliation will follow after him. A reconciliation with God and a reconciliation with each other. Friends, this means that we have work ahead of us because during this time we have been hurt by others. And during this past year, especially if we think about how people have acted in this past year, we have been hurt by others and we've hurt others. It's gone both ways. So how are you supposed to live now as reconciled people? Now that Elijah's come and reconciliation has followed him, the hearts of the sons are supposed to be turned towards the hearts of their fathers. Reconciliation is supposed to happen. This means we have some hard work of reconciling ahead of us. I like to think about this relational fracture like uh, a dislocated shoulder in the body. When your shoulder gets dislocated, it hurts a lot. <laughs> and you don't want anyone to touch it. But what you need when your shoulder is dislocated is for someone who knows what they're doing to put it back in its place. Yes, it will hurt. But it'll be worse if we don't deal with it. It's going to hurt and it's going to be really hard to deal with the relational fracture that's happened over the last year in our church. But to not deal with it will cause a lot worse damage down the road. Elijah's come. The greater Elijah has come. Reconciliation is to follow him. That means we need to be willing to reconcile with others. And that's only going to happen if we admit where we have been wrong, where we have been insensitive, where we have been offensive, where we have not thought about others before ourselves. And it also means we have to forgive. Rather than sitting with bitterness 
and hatred and anger towards people who have hurt us, we offer to our brothers and sisters in Christ forgiveness. Real, under-the-surface, heart disposition forgiveness. Because we know we've been forgiven much. So we forgive much. It's going to hurt. It's going to be hard. But we have to be the people, the kind of people who reconcile. We have to deal with it. So look, if you know that you are in one of those relationships with another Christian, this is your opportunity before the church opens up in full again to make things right. So that when things do open up again, you don't have to leave your altar. You don't have to leave your gift at the altar and go deal with it. You can come joyfully back in knowing that you have done everything in your power to see reconciliation take place in your relationships. This is only going to happen if we start reimagining ourselves of the church as the family of God. The church is no less than a gathered assembling. We are the gathered assembling. But we're more than that. We're a family. And one of the hardest parts of us not gathering together each week is I think we've forgotten that we are actually family. And our older brother is looking at us and saying, look, it's time for you to apologize and it's time for you to forgive. The question is, is are we willing to actually listen to our older brother, our rescuer, our teacher? Do we believe that our salvation is by grace, through faith, unto obedience for our abundance? But the reason Jesus gives us the teachings he does is because it's going to lead to our flourishing. As hard as it's going to be, it's actually better for the shoulder to be put back into place. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes up to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. See, our help comes from the Lord who was on the mountain. He was on the mountain when he taught us how to live. He was on the mountain with Moses and Elijah when he demonstrated that he was the fulfillment of all of salvation history. We look to the mountain because our Lord was on the mountain, but he didn't just teach us on the mountain. He, he came down from the mountain and he lived amongst us. He lived to perfection the law that he taught. And then after living in perfection, the law that he taught, he went up another hill called Golgotha, where he died for our sin in our place so that he can extend to us the reconciliation with God that we so desperately need. And he calls us to live in light of that reconciliation. This Jesus came down off that hill, went into a tomb, but didn't stay in the tomb. He rose victoriously. He ascended to the throne of his father. He reigns now over all things as the king of the universe and he will return again one day. Lord, make it soon that he will come again. Make all things new that the reconciliation with God and others that we so sorely crave will be ours exhaustively and eternally. True, deep reconciliation with God and each other forever.
And until that day comes, he calls us to live in light of the reality of the kingdom already here and now. To be the kind of people that reconcile so that relational fracture can turn into relational flourishing. So how do we live in the in-between? Well, we listen to Jesus and we wait for his return. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm thankful for uh, your kindness to us. I'm thankful that you have fulfilled your promise, that you are the kind of God who keeps all of your promises. Lord, I'm thankful for this book of Malachi that teaches us how to live as we wait for you to come back and make all things new like you've promised you will. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, by your spirit, help us to be the kind of people who don't just hear your word, but become the kind of people who actually live in light of it and do the hard work that obedience requires. It's uncomfortable, but Lord, we know that it will ultimately lead to our flourishing because you're good and you want our good. We thank you for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray this. Amen.